Good afternoon to those of you in Europe and good morning to those of you in the United States. Uh, I wish we were convening under more uplifting circumstances, but nonetheless, uh, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the second webinar of our special series on nuclear threats and the war in Ukraine. My name is Hannah Notte. I'm a senior research associate at the Vienna Center for Disarmament and Nonproliferation. And I wish to mention upfront before we get started that this event will be recorded. Consistent with our mission at CNS and the VCDNP of promoting nonproliferation education and analysis, we now offer this special series of webinars about the nuclear challenges and risks that have arisen as a result of Russia's unprovoked war against Ukraine. Our discussion today will focus on a topic which all of us, I imagine until about a week ago, hoped we would never discuss with such urgency and alarm. And that is the risk of nuclear weapons use in the context of the current war. On Sunday, which was the fourth day of Russia's aggression against Ukraine, President Putin ordered Russia's deterrent forces into a special mode of combat duty. In recent days, Russia's northern fleet um, said that several of its nuclear submarines were involved in exercises, and it also appears that units of the strategic missile forces dispersed ICBM launches for exercise purposes, according to the Russian Defense Ministry. In response to these events, the NATO Secretary General called Putin's nuclear alert order dangerous rhetoric, uh, I quote, and a behavior that is irresponsible, and the United States has echoed that sentiment, but has so far refrained from announcing any changes in its own nuclear weapons alert level. And in fact, yesterday, the Pentagon postponed a scheduled ICBM test launch to, I quote, demonstrate that we have no intention in engaging in any actions that can be misunderstood or misconstrued. And then finally, yesterday, uh, the Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Zakharova offered what I initially thought was a somewhat reassuring statement when she suggested that the Russian Federation assumes that the, I quote, apocalyptic scenario of Russia pressing the nuclear button will not be implemented under any pretext or any, under any, any conditions. Yet her Foreign Minister Lavrov stated on the same day in an interview that a third world war, should it break out, would be nuclear and devastating. It's against this backdrop that we will discuss today the risks of nuclear weapons use in the context of the current Ukraine war, as well as ways to mitigate such risks. We recognize that this is a highly emotional and frightening topic, especially amid the current debate as to whether Western states should step up their military support for Ukraine and even implement a no-fly zone over Ukrainian skies, which some argue is absolutely necessary at this time, while others caution that this could precipitate escalation with Russia. But that's why we think it's all the more important to have a facts-based and sober exchange on these issues with professionals who have studied nuclear arms control for a long time. Before I'll introduce our speakers, I just quickly want to indicate what types of questions and issues we look forward to discussing over the next 90 minutes or so. We want to understand what Russian nuclear doctrine and Russia's current nuclear posture tell us about the risk of nuclear use. 
And what did uh, Putin's nuclear alert order really mean in operational terms? What are likely pathways to inadvertent Russia-NATO escalation that could involve a nuclear exchange? Is Russia's deliberate so-called limited use of a tactical nuclear weapon a conceivable option? So what do we know about Russian intentions about so-called uh, escalate to de-escalate? Um, how does the availability of dual capable delivery platforms, so delivery platforms that can carry either conventional or nuclear warheads, how does that shape uh, escalation dynamics um, amid this current fog of war? And then finally, what institutions, mechanisms, channels, platforms remain available to Russia and NATO to engage in crisis communication and nuclear risk reduction? We are very fortunate to have with us today to discuss these and related questions, Dr. Ulrich Kühn, who is the director of the Arms Control and Emerging Technologies Program at IFSH Hamburg, and also a non-resident scholar with the Nuclear Policy Program of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Previously, Uli worked with the VCDNP and also for the German Federal Foreign Office, and he's the founder of the Trilateral Deep Cuts Commission and a former Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow and a prolific writer who has published extensively on these issues. Second, we have with us our own Dr. Nikolai Sokov, who's a senior fellow at the VCDNP. He's a former arms control negotiator for the Soviet and then Russian Foreign Ministry. He participated in negotiations towards the INF Treaty, START I and START II. Uh, he holds a PhD from the University of Michigan and the Soviet equivalent of a PhD from the Institute of World Economy and International Relations of the Russian Academy of Sciences. I would now like to ask both speakers to give a few minutes of introductory remarks, uh, starting with Nikolai Sokov. And again, for those of you who joined late, I just want to remark that this event will be on the record. Nikolai, please. Oh, thank you, Hannah. Yes, I will try uh, to keep my introductory remarks short and will be ready to amplify any topic uh, during uh, the Q&A session. So Vladimir Putin has invoked nuclear weapons already twice uh, uh, during the ongoing crisis. Uh, furthermore, uh, uh, the Russian strategic forces uh, yesterday have launched an exercise um, uh, so all these developments uh, uh, seem quite dangerous. Uh, I must say that uh, we have not seen uh, the use of nuclear weapons for political uh, pressure um, in the crisis uh, since the 70s. Uh, and that really shows the severity of the situation that we live in uh, these uh, dark days. Uh, quite obviously, uh, uh, that behavior mm, is unacceptable. Uh, what's perhaps more interesting is that uh, uh, these references uh, to nuclear weapons are not, <clears throat> as I see the case, I'll try uh, maybe to speak louder. Yes, I see that there is a remark. Uh, it's hard to hear me. Uh, um, moreover, uh, that behavior does not, in fact, conform uh, to the Russian official nuclear policy. Uh, uh, according to that policy, 
as we know it in the past 20 years with all the changes and evolution, <clears throat> um, nuclear weapons uh, are only intended uh, to deter um, an attack against Russia with a nuclear um, or a large scale conventional attack. Uh, and I, I don't know what is, what's happening. Usually uh, my Zoom works well, as I see that I'm not being heard. <laughs> uh, goodness. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, okay, so I'll try to speak even louder. Um, uh, so where was I? Uh, so yes, uh, uh, there's never actually been any mention in the past about the possibility of nuclear weapons uh, being used for offensive purposes or to support an invasion um, of another country and to prevent um, interference of, by the international community um, in that invasion. So uh, uh, that's really quite unexpected uh, development and a very dangerous development. And to make uh, things even worse, uh, such threats were just unnecessary. Uh, in my view, there was actually no way that NATO would um, interfere uh, in that war militarily um, anyway. Uh, that reaction uh, of NATO and the European Union would have been exactly the same as we see it uh, today, regardless of whether nuclear weapons were uh, mentioned uh, by Vladimir Putin. Uh, so, uh, so that policy is wrong, you know, uh, uh, legally, morally, and even um, in terms of the rationality of the decision making. <clears throat> so I was asked uh, uh, to give a very short brief on what we're actually facing there, <clears throat> without going into too many uh, details that's a complicated subject. Uh, let me just note uh, that the ready to use nuclear weapons are strategic missiles, land-based and sea-based. That is uh, based on land and silos or mobile. Mm, so those uh, are based on submarines and it's approximately 1500 warheads. Uh, uh, these can be launched, you know, like on a moment's really notice uh, without any preparation that might be uh, seen from the outside. Uh, uh, the rest of uh, nuclear weapons are kept at storage facilities and uh, to launch them, they have to be released from facilities or uh, transported uh, to military bases. Uh, some of them are close. Uh, to storages uh, some further uh, and loaded um, onto delivery vehicles. Uh, quite obviously, that activity can be detected uh, from satellites. Uh, these constitute probably about uh, 2,000 uh, to 2,500 warheads. Uh, most of them are um, long-range cruise missiles um, uh, uh, based either um, on heavy bombers or on submarines or surface ships. Uh, uh, now, uh, well, there is like a bit like of a uh, challenge uh, there in terms of how uh, you classify them, of course. Uh, for example, 
um, air launched cruise missiles are legally um, not classified as strategic and sea launched cruise missiles are, are legally classified as um, non strategic, although it's exactly the same missiles. The bottom line is uh, the emphasis of Russia is on uh, uh, long range weapons. I would uh, be probably uh, even slightly more precise. Uh, theater long, uh, I'm sorry, theater range weapons. Uh, that is uh, from inside Russia, they can reach any targets inside Europe. Uh, to reach targets in the United States, uh, platforms uh, such as bombers or ships or submarines uh, will have uh, to travel some way so that uh, cruise missiles can reach the United States. Um, so that's kind of the bottom line here. It's about 1,500 strategic warheads that can be launched right away. And uh, probably from two, uh, 2,000 to 2,500, uh, that will take time uh, to get launched. Now, uh, an important uh, aspect of the Russian strategic posture uh, that's rarely mentioned in the media is the fact that it also includes long-range conventional weapons. Uh, uh, well, that's really the kind of weapons that the United States has possessed and used on multiple occasions since the early 90s. Uh, uh, Russia has invested very considerable resources into obtaining them uh, in the past 20 years. Is, uh, uh, it demonstrated uh, the initial capability uh, in 2015 and now has uh, well, probably several thousand of these weapons. We don't uh, know the exact count, but it's several thousand, uh, definitely. Uh, so it's mostly a long range cruise missiles that I already referred to. Uh, and they are dual capable. Uh, that is the same missile can carry a nuclear warhead or a conventional warhead. <clears throat> uh, that, <clears throat> uh, the primary mission of these missiles is in fact conventional. Uh, the ability to wage long range, large scale kind of conflict uh, without going nuclear. But here we actually have a major kind of challenge, a major uncertainty. Uh, yes, the number of nuclear warheads for, for these missiles is smaller than the number of missiles. Uh, but if, for example, uh, when it comes uh, to a direct military conflict with NATO, uh, in Russia, I'll launch a number of cruise missiles, uh, NATO will not actually know whether these missiles I'll carry nuclear mm, or conventional warhead. Uh, yes, and uh, uh, well, it's quite possible that NATO will prefer to uh, to make a mistake, you know, on the side of caution uh, uh, and treat them uh, as nuclear mm, and respond accordingly. So that's actually one of the most dangerous. Uh, uh, mm, escalation paths uh, that I see, uh, that uncertainty about uh, the nature you know, of strikes, especially the very first kind of uh, use of long-range weapons. 
what do we know uh, about the warnings uh, that Putin has been giving about um, alert status? Uh, not actually much. Uh, the language uh, that Putin is actually used is not the standard military language. So we can only guess uh, what he meant. Judging by all you know, signs and everything, well, it's not a lot of higher mm, alert. It's, it's mostly uh, a message to the military, uh, stand by in case orders come. So it's not uh, you know, an attempt uh, 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 to go to war footing. Yes, it's mostly you know, a procedure that uh, only mm, affects uh, command and control chains and basically enhances uh, 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 the teams um, uh, at command and control centers, uh, um, additional people and more, you know, attentive kind of status. Uh, also, that is the lowest kind of level of heightened um, alert. Uh, otherwise, uh, 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 US intelligence community actually leaked uh, information that uh, no preparation for strike uh, would be actually seen. That was the case, I suppose, until yesterday, because yesterday, uh, some part, we don't know exactly which part uh, of Russian strategic force went on exercise, which meant that several submarines apparently left ports and some um, mobile missiles actually uh, got dispersed. Uh, that's done uh, to enhance uh, the uh, 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 survivability of the force. Uh, 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 such activities actually uh, do indicate uh, an exercise, but given the time, well, it's very hard kind of to see that other than um, a signal. So uh, plenty of mixed actual messages, uh, nothing uh, too definitive, but at the same time, uh, the atmosphere becomes uh, more and more uh, tense here. Uh, uh, that said, there's been no uh, information about the transfer of nuclear weapons uh, from storages uh, to military bases. Yes, and that's a good sign, uh, meaning that um, we cannot yet actually seal any preparation for uh, of, for the use of uh, some variety of on non-strategic weapons. The Israel, uh, uh, well, uh, the reaction of the United States has actually been uh, quite restrained and measured. Uh, the initial statement of uh, the strategic command clearly indicated. Uh, that the United States was following um, events and that the US posture was um, adequate. Uh, a nice is actually term uh, to indicate that uh, Stratcom took note uh, of Russian activities uh, and statements, uh, but is avoiding uh, tougher language uh, uh, to keep the situation under control. Oh, yes. And you already mentioned, Hannah, uh, 
uh, that the test launch of an SCBM was postponed. So far, the only good news is, uh, is the existence of a, a direct communication channel between the United States and Russian militaries. Uh, um, uh, General, um, um, sorry, um, well, the chairman is, sorry, um, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mili, uh, to Chief of General Staff of Russia, Gerasimov. Uh, that's actually very good news. Uh, they've been in touch before. Uh, they maintain contact and in many ways, uh, that line of communication is actually more valuable than the hotline between presidents. Uh, so after all, it's the military who really control weapon all in the end. Uh, and uh, in the past, it was in fact, the discipline and the commitment of the military uh, that prevented the loss of control over nuclear weapons uh, when the Soviet Union was breaking apart. Uh, and we can only hope that uh, this channel and similar discipline and commitment by the military uh, uh, could help avoid excessively dangerous steps, misperceptions, and miscommunication. Uh, and my final remarks will be about arms control. Uh, so dialogue has been uh, discontinued. That's actually quite a sad term to me uh, because uh, last time I heard uh, that uh, the term was uh, in the fall of 1983 uh, 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 when arms control negotiations were also discontinued. Yes, and that was actually the time of probably the worst crisis uh, uh, between the East and the West uh, since uh, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Quite a tense and dangerous time. I don't remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was only four years old then, but I remember extremely well 1983 and it was a bad time. Uh, so it's once again discontinued. Uh, when it might resume, uh, no one really knows, of course. Uh, so anyone's actually guess uh, is on the one hand, of arms control is to the benefit of, of everyone, uh, 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 the East and the West, the entire world. Yes, on the other hand, of course, it's very hard uh, 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 to pursue that dialogue in the present atmosphere. Uh, uh, well, really critical uh, to the prospects of arms control uh, is the question that no one seems to be uh, uh, seriously contemplating at the moment. Uh, what will happen to Russia after this war mm, uh, uh, is over? Uh, uh, so how the war will end, uh, uh, what the post-war actually period will be, uh, because uh, because actually Russia uh, um, might actually uh, win the war, but lose the post-war actually kind of uh, situation. Uh, yes, at the same time, yes, it might actually lose the war too. So, uh, so really no good kind of consequences uh, of that aggression for Russia. Uh, but what exactly happens um, afterwards, uh, we don't know. Uh, and depending on uh, the Western plans for Russia, the policy 
uh, that NATO and the European Union will pursue toward Russia uh, will know what arms control might look like and whether there'll be um, any um, arms control at all. Uh, and I do actually think that it's vital to start seriously contemplating uh, that future, uh, that future uh, post-war and post-Putin, uh, uh, to be honest. Um, uh, 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 NATO and the European Union uh, will need to address uh, the likely gap between the desirable and the achievable. So uh, uh, without knowing uh, what's going to happen, you know, in the next months, probably um, a year, we cannot really seriously discuss the prospects of arms control. That's actually sad because uh, before the invasion, looked for arms control seemed quite good and quite positive. Uh, we saw uh, the emergence of mm, the forward looking agenda. Uh, not just the strategic stability dialogue, but also the possibility of a new INF treaty, whole package of, of confidence building measures. And uh, uh, now we lost it all. So let's see uh, what the future uh, will hold for us. Thank you. Thank you, Nikolai. Thank you very much. Uli, the floor is yours. All right, thank you so much. Um, first of all, thanks to CNS, uh, to Hannah Nott and Bill Potter in particular. Uh, you guys, uh, are you hearing me? All right, good. Um, so Nikolai just said it, these are indeed uh, really dark times and we keep hearing that this is uh, a watershed moment for European and uh, I think also for global peace and security. And uh, I do think that uh, such uh, dramatic sounding assessments are just right. And one cannot overstate the severity of events uh, unfolding in front of us. As some of you uh, might know, uh, I published a piece uh, on inadvertent escalation risks a couple of days ago with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists in the early hours of the Russian invasion. And I think I have to be a bit self-critical here, um, as with all pieces um, that are being written while events are unfolding, early takes on the war always contain some element of a hot take. And we all need to be careful in our assessing the situation. At the same time, I think it is part of our job as nuclear analysts and scholars to inform the public and uh, and the policymakers and try to shed a bit of light at the famous fog of war. In my opening remarks, I want to talk about the risk of escalation, meaning deliberate, inadvertent, um, and or accidental escalation. Again, uh, a note of caution here, I'm talking about these issues um, and a warning of certain uh, scenarios is already inadvertently part of the Russian playbook for war because the more we warn of certain scenarios, particularly nuclear ones, the higher the chance that fear is being spread and the less inclined Western governments might be to take decisive action against the Russian aggression. Then again, as I just said, not knowing about the risks involved in certain Western policy responses could produce unwanted outcomes. Thus, I think we need to be aware of certain risks 
we need to weigh them. Uh, we need to make sure we limit the potential for inadvertent escalation. And well, in the end, formulate, formulate policies accordingly without simply backing down. So indeed, this is a very fine line to walk and uh, it's, it's a difficult call to make. Um, in order to get our heads around what might unfold in the coming hours, days and weeks, I think it's important to start from this point. The danger of nuclear use in this war is still rather low. It is, however, not zero and it is unfortunately real. I deem it necessary to differentiate here between two levels of possible uh, escalation. On the one hand, tactical, and on the other, strategic. Now, at the tactical level, a whole range of potential escalation risks arise from the sheer proximity of NATO and Russian forces now that the war is raging on the alliance's border. I'm sitting here in Hamburg, it's slowly getting dark, and uh, you just fly two hours and you're in Ukraine. So that's really close. Now, here are just three scenarios that I would like to share with you. Uh, spoiler, of course, there are many more. Um, the first one is an unintentional airborne incident. Um, we could see a violation of NATO airspace by Russian aircraft, uh, an attempt uh, of a peaceful escort out of alliance uh, area uh, is being misinterpreted by the Russian side. This is what's usually gonna happen. Normally, uh, NATO aircraft um, escort uh, the Russian planes out of the airspace, but uh, let's just realize here, the Russian pilots might be under severe battle stress. They might misinterpret um, uh, the moves by uh, NATO aircraft in that regard. Uh, you probably heard the latest news about a missing Romanian fighter jet. Um, I still think it's still not clear yet um, what happened to that fighter jet. Um, there were latest news um, about four Russian aircraft violating uh, Swedish airspace, though obviously that's not NATO territory. And though it seems to me that that was probably rather intentional from the Russian uh, military. The second scenario unfolding could be that Western weapons deliveries come under fire from the Russian side. NATO troops are then drawn into that firefight and we end up in a shooting war between uh, NATO and Russia. Um, there have already been reports of uh, Russian cruise missile use very close to the Polish border in the very early hours of the war uh, that were setting up alarms on the Polish side. And the more the weapons deliveries increase in the coming days, the more the Russian army takes control of the western border of Ukraine, the more I see uh, the risk here of escalation increasing in such a scenario. The third um, scenario that I would like to share with you is that Ukrainian soldiers or perhaps foreign volunteers are trained on NATO territory, then they cross the border to Ukraine, uh, during the border crossing, um, uh, they get into a firefight with the Russians. NATO troops are perhaps drawn into that firefight. And uh, you might say, but well, that's not really the case right now. But there was already an announcement uh, from the US that there is uh, a possibility and there are plans to train um, Ukrainian um, uh, volunteers on NATO territory. 
plus, of course, there's the possibility of uh, Western uh, prisoners of war being uh, captured by the Russians, being paraded on Russian TV, or perhaps their bodies shown. And this will increase calls in the West to do something. And I'm concerned of that something. And I think it's really something that we need to think through. Now let's move to the strategic level. Here, I think it is already enormously difficult to balance the humane and justified desire to prevent further Russian atrocities against the risks of an even greater war, including the possibility of nuclear use. The German government's decision, along with other EU and NATO partners, to supply certain weapons to Ukraine, and that was just enforced today, Germany will send more weapons increases the pressure on Putin, and that is, after all, as I understand it, what is intended. However, this also increases the danger that Putin might escalate to nuclear use the longer the war lasts and the stronger the economic pressure on Russia becomes. And one should not forget the fact that Putin probably links this war directly with his own fate and uh, with his future historical legacy. And this personal side to the war, and others have pointed to that, um, I think Sancharab wrote a really good article uh, in, in the Financial Times a couple of days ago. So this personal side to the war is very important when weighing the risks, precisely because we're dealing with an isolated autocrat who is unlikely to receive any opposition from the inner Russian circle. So at what point and by what means of what signals could things really get serious? Um, I think Nikolai talked uh, about this a little bit, so I'm just gonna try to make this short here. Again, I think we have to distinguish between the nuclear strategic and the nuclear tactical level. What are possible strategic nuclear signals? Larger number of Russian nuclear submarines leaving ports, visible activities at long range bombers, that is, or meaning the loading of nuclear weapons, of course, this will have to be uh, watched closely uh, through satellite images, but as we know, satellites only um, uh, can see as far as there are um, on the clouds there. Uh, the dispersion of road mobile intercontinental ballistic missiles that are normally kept in garages. And the signal recipient in that regard would clearly be the United States. Now, what could be possible tactical nuclear signals? That would be transfer of tactical warheads from the central storage sites that are known uh, to the West and their transfer to the appropriate military units that have the respective delivery systems, meaning short and medium range missiles, fighter jets, sea-based units. And the signal recipient here, I think would be less clear, would probably mainly be Ukraine, but could possibly also be European NATO allies, for instance, Germany, could perhaps also point uh, to the Russian willingness to escalate to a demonstration strike over an uninhabited area such as the, um, the Baltic Sea or perhaps the Black Sea. Now, what can be done or what should not be done under any circumstances? Again, let us differentiate between the two levels, the tactical and the strategic levels. At the tactical escalation level, I think it is of high importance to prevent possible unintended military incidents at sea and in the air. 
And I think it would be really important that the sites um, would quickly agree on practical mechanisms to minimize risk. What would that mean in concrete terms? Well, adherence to professional airmanship at all times, use of specific communications frequencies, or even the establishment of a ground-based communications line. And um, there are certain lessons here, I think, that we could learn uh, from the agreement between the United States and Russia over Syria, even though that case is not comparable to what we're seeing right now. But some of the mechanisms here could perhaps help. At these times, it is also especially important to have constantly open military to military channels between Russian and NATO militaries to prevent or help resolve unintended incidents quickly uh, once they happen or in case of doubt. In turn, the NATO military on the Ukrainian border should be particularly careful not to cross into Ukrainian territory during the physical movement of Western weapons supplies or during possible future training of Ukrainian volunteers, thus giving Russian troops an excuse to, to escalate. Therefore, EU and NATO member states must closely coordinate on the form and practical implementation of arms deliveries. And my feeling here is from what I read from Brussels is that NATO countries are actually quite good at coordinating, but it seems that the EU is not. At least the public messaging or some of the public messaging of uh, the EU uh, seems to be quite concerning in that regard. National go-it-alones, in military support of Ukraine must be prevented. NATO troops must not intervene directly in the war. And that leads me to Ukrainian calls for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Um, obviously, um, I think that is uh, understandable from a moral point of view, but let's face it, it would have to be fought for and enforced by NATO, perhaps including on Russian territory. So from NATO's point of view, this is not a question, this is, this is not in the cards, and uh, it's probably a terrible idea if we consider the potential for escalation that it would entail. So let's now move finally uh, to the strategic escalation level, what could be done there. I think it's pretty clear that we urgently need to identify possible off-ramps for uh, Putin and for Russia. Whether he wants to take those is another question. First of all, the West, I think, must quickly agree on its strategic goals, that is, which results of the war are acceptable to us? Which results do we want to prevent? Based on this, which means do we want to use for this purpose? In my opinion, an urgent task would be for the West to agree on the specific conditions under which sanctions could be withdrawn and perhaps withdrawn quickly. This is an old problem described since decades in the literature on sanctions. If you do not link your sanctions to an acceptable outcome, thus making it possible for the other side to change its behavior and get rewarded for it, then the other side does not know whether at all it is possible to escape the effects of sanctions. Let me pose a question here also to our audience. Should economic and financial sanctions, for example, be withdrawn immediately if Russia agrees to a ceasefire and withdraws from Ukraine? What exactly would withdrawal mean here, pre-2014 or pre-February 2022? 
What about the legitimate issue of reparations to Ukraine? I think while we should and must discuss these issues in the West, one thing is clear. It is not up to us to decide what is or is not acceptable to Ukraine. However, it is up to us to agree on our strategy and the instruments associated with it. And honestly, I don't know how it is for you guys in the US. Uh, from European leaders, I don't hear much about this. Last but not least, the US could further support a possible diplomatic off-ramp strategy with arms control measures and could quickly put into actions its December 2021 offer to Moscow to start talks about missile defense being deployed in Eastern Europe and a possible reciprocal INF regime, meaning a new INF regime. I think such talks should then start immediately, but obviously that's a follow-on question to the larger strategic question of how to get out of the war. One last point, of course, all of this would have to be in line with our policy of providing sound military reassurance to our Eastern allies, because they are afraid and they deserve it. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your interest and I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much, Uli, for this very comprehensive uh, overview. I think there are a lot of points in your remarks that will stimulate an interesting discussion and questions from the audience. Before I turn it uh, to the audience for questions, and we already have uh, Bill Potter raising his hand and uh, individuals writing in the Q&A function, um, I do want to um, ask two quick questions to both of you. Um, and I would ask for sort of relatively brief responses so that we can get to many questions in, in the 45 minutes that remain. I do want to come back for Nikolai to this notion not of uh, unintended use or use that arises out of an unintended uh, in inadvertent escalation, but intentional use. Nikolai, what do Russian military strategists and Russian nuclear doctrine assume about the viability of limited use? So the idea that Russia would use a tactical nuclear weapon in conflict for the purpose of Russia unequivocally messaging that it's really willing to go all the way uh, to achieve its uh, strategic and political goals in a conflict. So does Russia assume from all we know that limited use can indeed stay limited without escalating to a strategic exchange. So it comes basically to this question of whether Russian military planners really believe that escalating to de-escalate is viable. Do Russia and the West conceive differently of escalation ladders? That's my question to you. And then Uli, right afterwards, can you talk just a little bit about what this current situation, this, this drastic watershed moment means in your opinion for European countries, for European defense policy going forward. We had this seminal speech by Chancellor Scholz in the Bundestag on Sunday with the announcement of a new defense fund with 100 billion US dollars. Lots of discussions happening here in Germany and other European capitals. What's your take on this? Nikolai, do you wanna go first? Sure, I can, uh, although <laughs> that's actually a very, very big question that you asked. Uh, now, uh, now, there isn't a good question. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, uh, there isn't a good answer to that question at the moment because uh, as I already said that uh, uh, the threat with nuclear weapons uh, under the current uh, scenario is not something that was contained, you know, 
out in Russian official policy is all for that matter, well, you know, uh, in analytical kind of papers, including by uh, by the Russian military. Also, it's not easy to give a good answer, but uh, uh, generally speaking, the idea uh, uh, has been uh, that in case of a large-scale conventional um, attack, actually, Russia um, might resort uh, uh, to a nuclear strike on a limited scale. Uh, tailored deterrence, fundamentally, yes, but tailored uh, 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 deterrence, and in fact, in Russia, the term was coined even before it was coined in the United States. Uh, that policy continued for some time, although uh, oh, it's never been officially recognized. Okay, so uh, so official parlance on on never included the term of de-escalation, although it was quite actually clear. Uh, 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 that's exactly what was meant. Uh, that continued until 2014. In 2014, uh, the Russian military doctrine included the notion of conventional deterrence. So right now, uh, the idea is if Russia um, is attacked, uh, uh, it will first actually resort uh, to long-range conventional weapons. Yes, and only well, in case of a major defeat, uh, uh, yes, it could still actually go nuclear. So yes, that's the official policy. Is uh, Once again, we're out of that kind of realm right now. So it's quite unpredictable. Uh, our final point is about tactical nuclear weapons. I strongly believe uh, that the whole idea that limited nuclear use would be uh, with tactical short-range, let's put it like that, nuclear weapons is a mistaken idea. For the past 20 years, they've been quite actually consistent uh, that reliance is on long-range theater range and strategic range actually mm, assets. Uh, uh, and that actually makes a lot of sense because uh, usually uh, since 1991, the United States and NATO, uh, uh, when they resorted uh, uh, to military power, um, uh, emphasized uh, long-range conventional weapons. Uh, so to get to the basis from which, for example, aircraft fly, you also need long-range assets. Uh, so it's, I would really kind of forget about the tactical, well, meaning short-range kind of uh, side of things. Uh, the shortest range asset that Russia might actually use is um, Iskander, uh, 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 that's 500 kilometers, uh, but all the rest are much, much longer range. Thank you, Nikolai. Uli, you wanna take it away? Sure. Um, so what does all that mean for the so-called European peace and security order? Um, first of all, um, a couple of, uh, of colleagues uh, from the US, um, from Western Europe, but also including from Russia and also Ukraine have pointed out throughout the last couple of years that the job is not done meaning the job that uh, the US thought it was done for Europe, Europe whole and free, 
to quote uh, George Bush Sr. here, because there was a country in Europe that clearly felt it had no place in the European security architecture, at least not anymore since the beginning of the new millennium, and that being Russia. Um, and now we have a country that has broken all the rules, that has devalued um, documents like the Helsinki Final Act or the uh, OSCE's uh, uh, Charter of Paris from 1990. So what does that mean? I mean, where are we going in the next couple of years? Uh, and hopefully, we don't know how this war will end. Um, there are certain scenarios here. I think uh, none of them is good. Um, but uh, let's assume that um, this war at some point ends without uh, drawing us all into a nuclear catastrophe, hopefully. Um, I think that we're going to see a, a huge return of containment policy all over Europe. I think we're going to see a, a massive remilitarization of Europe, um, um, something akin to a new Iron Curtain will probably uh, fall down, but uh, more to the east than it was during the Cold War. Uh, we will see a, a number of frontline states, uh, including the three Baltic states, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, perhaps Finland. Um, I do think that there is um, quite a possibility in the next uh, couple of months uh, that we might see um, uh, at least Sweden apply for NATO membership, uh, perhaps also Finland. Um, that look, then let's look at Germany. Uh, for Germany, clearly that was a wake up moment. Um, Germany has, uh, during the last couple of days, broken with a lot of uh, its traditions. Um, it's emphasizing um, economic politics over security politics, I think uh, is not viable anymore. Um, when we look uh, to the near and midterm future, uh, I would be careful to um, overestimate the 100 billion uh, euros that Chancellor Scholz um, announced for the Bundeswehr, because um, Germany had already spent uh, more than 50 billion euros per year uh, on its armed forces, uh, and it was getting out um, uh, nothing. So, uh, so no bang for the buck, and that was clearly a, a question of uh, bad bureaucracy and bad management. So. I would have loved the German forces first to, um, uh, to take a closer look at why are we not uh, getting tanks that are driving uh, or ships uh, that are sailing uh, for the money, but instead now we're just pouring a lot of money into that sinkhole. Um, we'll see what comes out of that, but I'm rather skeptical in that regard. And of course, uh, at the human dimension. Um, I mean, uh, today uh, I read that the first uh, Ukrainian refugees arrived here in Hamburg. Um, we know that already um, around 1 million have crossed the borders to various uh, European um, member states, uh, member states of the European Union. Um, we're going to see many more refugees. We're going to see more volunteers flowing in uh, from uh, the Western border to Ukraine. Um, and we know uh, from historical examples that uh, those ones, uh, irregular forces involved in combat once they return, will bring a lot of problems. So for societal peace in Western European countries, this is really, really a bad sign. Uh, so Europe is in for at least a decade of really troubled waters if nothing changes in Moscow itself.
Thank you so much for that, Uli. I do want to turn it over to the audience because I recognize that we just have a bit over half an hour and probably a lot of interest. Um, I'll pass the floor to Dr. Bill Potter first, but I also want to indicate to our audience that if you wish to ask a question, you can write it in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Um, you can also raise your hand if you wish to ask the question live and we can unmute you if you, if you wish to speak. Um, Bill? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Hannah and Uli and Nikolai, uh, for your um, both eloquent but also exceptionally sobering uh, remarks. And you raised so many uh, uh, dangerous kind of dismaying uh, scenarios that I'm, I'm hesitant to add a, <clears throat> another to the mix. But I, I've been struck um, by the, as uh, I can tell, uh, absence of much cyber activity uh, by the Russians in particular. Um, and uh, I think particularly, Uli, in terms of your, uh, you know, your different escalation scenarios, cyber is, a, is another uh, dimension that merits some attention. I, I was kind of struck uh, listening to uh, the radio this, this morning uh, about uh, these stories that there are non-governmental hackers uh, uh, in the US who uh, have been talking about mobilizing uh, to target uh, you know, Russia. And uh, I, I don't know the degree to which they would have capabilities or how this might be uh, uh, regarded by the Russians, what they could actually do. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, the issue of uh, one non-governmental orchestrated cyber attacks is something that could be of concern. And then more generally, uh, the question of uh, a change in terms of restraint on both sides with respect to cyber is something we also have to take account of. So I'd be interested, particularly in, in your comments, but also Nikolai, if you'd like to, uh, to make them. Thank you, Bill. Uh, who would wish to, to tackle that question? Uli, do you wanna go? Sure, um, excellent question, uh, Bill. And I'm very much concerned about what's going on in the cyber realm. I just didn't want to overload my, my presentation with my own personal concerns, but here's what has happening during the last couple of hours. So for instance, France has confirmed that there was a suspected cyber attack against Viasat, which is a satellite that is used for commercial streaming. So that's not that bad, but at the same time, hacktivist groups and uh, Western motivated hacktivist groups um, appear uh, to have started targeting the Russian GLONASS system, which is the Russian equivalent to GPS. And as far as I know, but uh, Nikolai is the better expert here and he might correct me, I think that the Russian military, at least um, certain conventional elements are also using GLONASS. So an attack on, uh, on the GLONASS system would be an attack uh, on the Russian military. It would be an attack uh, that one would not be able to attribute. Um, is, that a, is that really, was that really a Western group? Was that a Western group that was, um, that was being uh, organized by someone or directed? Uh, did they uh, do that out of their own motivation? It would not be clear at all. And I think we've seen the warning uh, from uh, the Russian ministry 
uh, that just said, um, we consider every attack on our satellite system as an act of war. And this is something where I'm really, really concerned because it's, it's this gray area where no one really knows who is active from where, what's their motivation. And usually it takes really good experts a couple of weeks to sort out who was responsible for what. We won't have the time if something serious happens in cyberspace. Thank you, Uli. Nikolai, did you want to add anything? Oh, just a few words, really. Also, I fully agree with what Uli said. Uh, I would only add that uh, I don't think there will be a lot of doubt uh, with Russian military uh, about attribution. Uh, they will not try to decide whether the, uh, if it's a government or like a non-governmental actor. Uh, well, in all actual likelihood, uh, they will just attribute to all to the government and. Uh, as I say, I agree, that's actually quite a dangerous um, activity. Uh, and um, how could it bear? Oh, yeah, I understand the motivation. Uh, but I don't think that uh, uh, non-governmental actors or even individuals uh, fully think uh, through possible consequences of their actions. Thank you for that, Nikolai. I do want to turn to a question in the chat, which with your permission, Oli, I'll address to you. There's a question here that says the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian diaspora have done a very successful job of winning global public opinion. To what, to what degree does public opinion play a role in any escalation spiral, particularly for the use of no-fly zones in Western Ukraine or the direct involvement of NATO special forces? From you observing you know, the mood in Germany and other European countries, do you think that that could play into an escalation spiral? Yeah, I think that's really an excellent question. Um, let me just make two points here. I mean, one thing that uh, I think, at least for me, was so far really surprising was how bad the, the Russian efforts in, uh, on social media were so far. I mean, we have heard all that stuff about uh, Russia being active in the gray zone war and how successful they are with their messaging and their narratives. I just don't see it. I, I even have a feeling that Russian bots are not very active so far. And so when it comes to winning the war uh, on social media, um, and that affects obviously a lot of the public opinion these days, I would say that's something that uh, Ukraine and the West so far has won. Um, the second point is, and that was something that I alluded to in my remarks, is that um, what is new here is that this is a war that is almost playing out in real time if you follow social media. You can see all these uh, little video clips from uh, Russian tanks, uh, uh, from the bombardment in Kharkiv uh, and whatnot. And obviously that is affecting the public opinion a lot because people are drawn into that. It's, 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 like, it's like watching a terrible movie, but in real time. And uh, my impression is 
that we see a mix of, of fear in Europe about what is to come, but I think that we're going to see increasingly a lot of anger and a lot of people asking their governments to what I refer to, to do something. And that pressure will mount in the next couple of days and weeks, the more that Russia turns to the tactics of bombarding um, uh, civilian quarters uh, of Kharkiv and Kiev, um, the more we see uh, pictures of atrocities being committed. And that will increase the pressure a lot on Western governments. And I think they will have to be really cool-headed and steadfast in not giving into the public pressure to do something, because what is that something? Again, we need to think from the very end, what is it that is acceptable for us? What is it that we want to avoid? And from there on, we need to develop a strategy. Thank you for that, Uli. Uh, Nikolai, did you, did you want to add something to that question? Oh, yes, a little bit. Um, uh, one is, we already actually are seeing that experience, you know, with active media, yes, and that was the war in Vietnam, which was actually conducted, well, maybe not completely live, uh, but very close to that, and quite obviously it uh, affected uh, uh, the United States very strongly. Uh, two, well, there was an interesting, actually, discussion at one point. Just imagine that the Cuban Missile Crisis were uh, evolving uh, in the presence of social uh, in the presence of social networks. Uh, uh, well, just whole idea uh, would it uh, be actually resolved or not? Uh, so we just need to understand kind of uh, 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 the potential for escalation there that no one really wants, uh, but it just happens sort of. Um, three, uh, uh, the negative side of social media is an uh, incredible actual number of fakes, uh, plenty of people and organizations are uh, trying uh, to assess them, uh, well, you know, and identify uh, fakes, but it's very hard to do. Um, and usually it's too late. Uh, so I think this, everyone uh, who is watching uh, news on social media, I uh, just should be aware that not everything uh, that they see is true. Uh, and uh, for, I don't know about uh, 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 that for sure, but there is uh, to a degree some censorship. So it's actually, uh, well, it's possible that Russian bots are not very active, not because they chose to, but because <laughs> uh, they're not given an opportunity. Uh, 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 yes, there is also other explanation. In fact, the Russian authorities do not really want uh, to escalate the situation kind of further. So uh, um, uh, to some degree, uh, they actually might be trying kind of, uh, uh, or to step in the back and on, on, on not elevate the emotions any further. Thank you for that, Nikolai. I would now like a bit good 
who is the director of the Eurasian Nonproliferation Program at CNS in, in Monterey, California, to unmute yourself because Sarah has done work on US-Soviet uh, nuclear arms control and nuclear risk reduction, and maybe she can share some thoughts uh, to what extent uh, history can, can offer any lessons for, for dealing with the current situation. Sarah. Thanks so much, um, Hannah. Thanks uh, for such a great conversation with Uli and Nikolai. Um, yeah, Hannah, I'm happy to offer some, some thoughts about kind of what I think the historical record can teach us here. Um, and, you know, for me, I think one of the most important lessons from looking at this historical record is that, you know, we can't assume that just because there is what looks to us like a nuclear close call or invocations of these kinds of you know, nuclear saber rattlings that we've been talking about here, that there will be policies implemented in place in response to those kinds of events after the fact. And in fact, I think we kind of know from looking at history that this depends on a lot of other factors. Um, you know, Nikolai was talking about the 1983 war scare. We talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think there are considerations about the ways that, you know, leaders uh, view um, the utility of different approaches for mitigating risk prior to a crisis happening, the extent to which they attribute the crisis to specific factors, their own perceptions of nuclear risk, you know, before a crisis happens, during the time of the crisis itself, and their own kind of views on the likelihood that there could be other such events in the future, maybe with less sanguine outcomes. Those are all considerations that influence the policies that they implement after the fact. Um, and so, you know, I think it's also bearing worth bearing in mind as well that sometimes the ways that people um, respond to a crisis and if they think that they have responded effectively to a crisis because it does not escalate to nuclear use, that can reinforce the view that existing policies work well. And that can actually dissuade, you know, policymakers from implementing approaches that might in the future be useful for reducing risk. Um, and so, you know, I, that's just kind of a, a note of caution here that not that anybody is suggesting this, but I think there's sometimes a conventional wisdom that if there is a close call or um, some kind of event that is approaching nuclear use, that there will then be policies implemented in the aftermath of that event that can prevent such things from happening in the future. And I don't think we can can readily assume that. Um, Hannah, if I can add one more note, not to just abuse my <laughs> prerogative as a member of the audience here, but um, I think there are some interesting lessons to be learned too from kind of reviewing existing risk reduction measures. Uh, one of those is, um, you know, I've done a lot of work on this, some of these detente era agreements like the 1973 agreement on the prevention of nuclear war. That was an agreement that was negotiated in a very, you know, unusual political situation because you had the Nixon administration trying to make inroads with China, trying to rebuild relations with Europe. And it really watered down the extent of an agreement that they could negotiate with the Soviet Union that wouldn't make those various parties feel threatened. Um, and so I think there are kind of political considerations here as well, in addition to lessons about what is actually effective in practice from a risk reduction standpoint versus agreements that codify rules of the road or are sort of more designed to um, encourage responsible behavior. And those don't always work in practice in the ways that that we might assume are in ways that might be effective. So that's just kind of amplifying some of the points that I think Uli and Nikolai in particular already made about you know, the utility of mill-to-mill -mill communication and things like that. Um, thanks, Hannah. Thanks for the chance to weigh in. Thank you so much, Sarah, for that. I do see Professor Cohen's hand up. Um, Professor, do you want to unmute yourself? 
Sure. Do you hear me? Yes. Okay. It's uh, it's a comment and a question to uh, just a sec. It's a question and a comment to 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 both to um, Nikolai and to uh, uh, Ulrich. Many of us were uh, shaped in the last twenty years by a lot of conversation about the nuclear taboo and the uh, tradition of non-use. Uh, Good studies that were made by uh, Tenenweld and by TV Paul and others. And many of us believe that at least in the Western side, there is a tradition possibly by now a norm about a certain kind of taboo. Uh, very little was done on the Soviet side, the Arshad side. And I wonder what Nikolai and possibly uh, Ulrich would like to say, how much that applied to the situation today and to the doctrine in general. The related question is to what extent the notion of a demonstration, nuclear demonstration, is a step before actual nuclear use on the tactical side on the Russian uh, doctrine, military doctrine. Thank you very much. Nikolai, would you like to, to address that comment and question? Oh, okay, yes, I'll try. Uh, well, there is a nuclear taboo. Uh, yes, I'm actually quite firm. Uh, I quite firmly believe in it, and that's why uh, the veiled actually threats uh, with nuclear weapons, possibly with nuclear weapons, all right. Yes, and Putin can always say that he meant strategic conventional, but possibly with nuclear weapons, that's why they are so dangerous because they give kind of uh, nuclear weapons uh, not more legitimacy but more. Of usability. Yes, uh, you can try now to employ them for political ends, and that's not a good idea. Uh, that said, uh, uh, the other side will also see more utility in nuclear weapons, I think, because well, it will perceive that uh, my nuclear weapons actually do deter uh, the other side from uh, going to full-scale aggression and things like that. Uh, so I think uh, 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 the non-use norm is still there, uh, but the utility of nuclear weapons will probably, well, uh, the perceived utility of nuclear weapons will probably uh, somewhat increase. Um, yes, and that's not very good news. Oh, uh, absolutely, yes. Oh, uh, that's not good news. Uh, 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 so one of the consequences, I think, that's going to be the next actual seminar uh, um, uh, uh, that CNS holds. Uh, but one of the consequences might actually be a, a wider rift uh, between on nuclear and on non-nuclear states. On nuclear states might actually see more utility, and non-nuclear states uh, will almost definitely see nuclear weapons as more dangerous. Uh, than seemed even just a week ago. And I would I would add, Nikolai, perhaps uh, uh, you know enhanced value of nuclear weapons not just for deterrent purposes but actually for coercing and compelling an adversary. I think this is what we're seeing in the in the present situation, and that can have ramifications for how actors in other regions, whether that's uh, the Middle East, for instance. Uh, or other regions look look at the utility of, of a nuclear weapons program, which which is uh, very concerning. Uh, Nikolai, yes, did you want to say something? Sure, go ahead. Uh, 
just a two finger uh, uh, to add here, uh, you already mentioned actually one more consequence there is that uh, official public policy, nuclear policy uh, will be less actually trusted, uh, definitely Russian, uh, uh, but also uh, public policy of other nuclear states. Uli. And I wanted to point out one thing. Um, there has been a wonderful book published, uh, published a couple of years back by uh, Todd Saxor and Matt Foreman on coercive nuclear threats. And the argument they make there is that coercive nuclear threats are not much of use. And I think they collected quite a lot of data points. So far, this crisis proves their point because Putin made a rather explicit but still rhetorical nuclear threat in response, the West decided to enact the strongest sanctions ever uh, on, on Russia. Uh, then uh, uh, Russia made another um, explicit nuclear threat uh, when raising the alert level. In response, uh, Turkey uh, closed uh, the Dardanelles and Bosporus Strait uh, for certain Russian ships. So not, and, and Nikolai referred to, uh, to the very muted and, and calm uh, reaction on the US side, so, so far, they seem to be right. My problem here is, is that a game that we're now going to play for the next couple of days and, and weeks and just raise the bars and raise the bars? Uh, I just don't want to uh, end up at the point where uh, Sachs or Foreman would have to uh, write a, a new conclusions chapter, if you get what I mean. Thank you very much for that, Uli. And I do want to pick up on one phrase that Nikolai just mentioned, statements by the Russian government on nuclear policy will not be trusted so, so much uh, anymore in the future, given what just happened, which brings us to the issue of declaratory policy. And for those in the audience who are not familiar with the term, declaratory policy is defined as a set of public statements about the circumstances in which a state would consider using nuclear weapons. Now, it was just a few weeks ago that Russia joined the other four permanent members of the UN Security Council in affirming that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Yet here we are just weeks later with President Putin threatening not so subtly that he might go uh, to the nuclear uh, escalation level. So what in your view does this present crisis mean for the future of declaratory policy, for the value of signaling intentions and for the real reliability of declaratory policy, also as we're still awaiting the United States nuclear posture review. Um, I don't know who wants to wants to come in on that. Nikolai, I see you nodding. Oh yeah, I can do. Uh, uh, now, uh, yes, uh, uh, trust in declaratory policy of Russia will be undermined. Uh, and that's exclusively actually uh, the fault of Putin. And moreover, it already actually said that uh, uh, that invoking nuclear weapons was actually quite useless. Yes, it was not needed, in fact. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't agree with Uli that certain things were uh, done by the West in response uh, to these kind of statements, I think. Uh, 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 these decisions would have been taken uh, 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 anyway. So uh, invoking nuclear weapons is actually counterproductive. Uh, yes, that's what the crisis has demonstrated. But the simple fact that these actually threats were made, uh, even though not very direct, 
but sufficiently uh, transparent, uh, will, yes, undermine our trust in the Russian declaratory policy, but to some extent, uh, everyone else's. And uh, that's not a comfortable actual situation when uh, you don't know whether you should uh, uh, take uh, um, official statements seriously. Well, it's not a comfortable situation for the entire world uh, when you uh, don't exactly know how this or that nuclear state will behave in different contingencies. Uh, well, it's actually been a big achievement uh, over decades and decades uh, uh, that we begin to trust declaratory policies uh, uh, yes, and use them uh, for analysis of, of planning um, and prediction. Yes, it would be quite sad if we lose that tool for you know, analysis and prediction. Uli, did, did you want to say anything further on that question? I just quickly want to add to what Nikolai said, because he made all the uh, important and relevant points here. I mean, let's face it, <clears throat> words matter. Words matter also in international politics. This is not something that we should just treat lightly. And in that regard, um, what is it that the Russians would, uh, would want us to tell in the future that we should believe? Um, this will be extremely, extremely difficult to come back to at least a modicum of trust in the future. Thank you for that, Uli. Um, we have 10 minutes left, so I do invite uh, the audience to post questions or raise their hand if you wish to ask a question. In the meantime, I'll read out a comment by Jeff Knopf in the chat box. He says that in addition to whatever might be demonstrated about utility, or a lack of it of nuclear weapons, the situation is also devastating to a key non-proliferation tool, security assurances. The Budapest Memorandum has completely collapsed. So why would any nuclear proliferator believe future promises that their security will not be put at risk uh, if they give up the bomb? Um, not sure, Uli or Nikolai, whether, whether you wanna address that comment. Um, uh, well, I can. I'll say a few words, but uh, uh, that's really something uh, for a much longer conversation. Uh, but very briefly, Ukraine uh, uh, did have a physical control of nuclear weapons, uh, but did not have uh, uh, the ability to use them. And they were massive, I would say, insurmountable economic, political, financial, and other uh, uh, of challenges to overcome uh, toward Ukraine's um, indigenous um, nuclear capability. I know about statements uh, that Ukraine uh, would have become a full-scale kind of nuclear power uh, without the Budapest um, um, memorandum. I strongly believe that's a romantic actual view. Uh, so it's whole different. Up I'm sorry. Uh, oh, oh, one more participant here. Uh, so yes, that's basically uh, oh, the answer. 
Thank you for that, uh, Nicola. I don't see any further questions uh, from the audience, so maybe I'll pose a final question to both um, to both speakers. Um, and some of uh, you have already addressed institutions, platforms, uh, to some extent. But I, I do want to come back because it's it's quite a central question. Russia and Western countries had over decades uh, negotiated a range of nuclear arms control and also risk reduction treaties. We've lost a number of those in recent years, whether that's through negligence, non-compliance by a party or outright withdrawal. Uh, so we're not left with much at present. So really which guardrails do we have today that can help us prevent nuclear escalation and through which platforms, mechanisms and channels can Russia and NATO countries uh, communicate in crisis um, to manage escalation risks? Yeah, perhaps let me let me quickly come in here. Um, so yeah, what is still left? So obviously we still have the New START Treaty, um, which is generally uh, a treaty about uh, restraint. Uh, I wouldn't call it a, a disarmament treaty, but it's a clear arms control treaty. It limits the number of uh, strategic uh, US and Russian warheads and delivery vehicles, uh, provides for information exchange, certain notifications, um, uh, clearly, um, the last really standing full-fledged nuclear arms control treaty that uh, that we have, and uh, Dmitry Medvedev has already hinted at it uh, that uh, well, perhaps uh, in response uh, to the Western politics, uh, Russia has or should get out of that treaty. So, of course, that would be terrible, terrible. Uh, what else do we have? We have the INCSI and uh, DMA agreements. Uh, the, the incidents uh, uh, on the high sea and dangerous military activities agreements, those are bilateral uh, Russian-US risk reduction uh, measures, uh, leftovers from the Cold War. The problem is uh, those, uh, those agreements, which are really important, they're only bilateral. And I think, and I pointed to that in my remarks, uh, we have a gap here. We would need something multilateral right now uh, between uh, NATO member states and uh, Russia in that regard uh, to, uh, to avoid uh, the worst when it comes uh, to, to accidents and certain military activities. Um, there's still the um, uh, OSCE Vienna document because I think when we talk about risk, nuclear risk, it's impossible these days to look at it without addressing the conventional realm. So this is growing again together into one uh, at least uh, from the from the viewpoint of risk, uh, the OSCE Vienna document was last updated uh, in 2011. It provides for certain notifications and inspections of military exercises. And Russia, since a couple of years, uses certain loopholes in the documents on ceilings in in, in order uh, not to notify uh, certain uh, military maneuvers by splitting up those maneuvers. Uh, and obviously in the, in the current environment, uh, it's also not implemented. Um, we lost uh, the INF Treaty, which uh, is, I think, uh, or was a, a, a terrible mistake by the Trump administration not to try harder, at least try. Um, we lost uh, the CFE Treaty um, uh, through the adaptation process. Um, and I think a lot of blame here rests on both sides. Uh, we lost the Open Skies Treaty, again, by the Trump administra administration, could have been a useful transparency uh, instrument. 
The NATO Russia founding act seems to be dead. Let's face it. Um, I expect uh, NATO to move uh, a lot of more conventional forces than uh, those so-called um, uh, um, additional uh, substantial combat forces are um, that are uh, supposed uh, not to be uh, stationed uh, in the uh, in the eastern countries of NATO. I expect NATO to do exactly that to deploy substantial combat forces in large numbers in the next uh, months. Um, so that document seems to be dead, uh, even though not officially yet. I don't know, I haven't heard of the NATO-Russia Council being used uh, during that crisis. Uh, what about the OSCE? I think it's in the cards that Russia will also leave the OSCE. I hope not. That would, in my understanding, still be the ideal uh, organization to deal with all these problems because it's inclusive, everyone has a seat at the table, it has an, a holistic understanding uh, of what security means, not just state security, but individual security, security in an economic sense. Um, the OSCE uh, has already been underground with a special monitoring mission. So. Um, there are a number of institutions left, but uh, there, I don't see any willingness from the Russian side to engage in those institutions. And of course, in hindsight, the losing of all these arms control instruments, I mean, that was a bellwether of what was coming. And a couple of us have warned about this since many, many years, but those warning signs were not heard of, were not heeded, and um, well, at some point, we have to start from scratch. Thank you for that, Uli. Um, Nikolai, we have three minutes left. I give you the final word, please. I'll try yeah, to do it in three minutes. Uh, uh, I would say that uh, control, his confidence building measures do not, uh, are not intended uh, as guardrails uh, uh, against uh, escalation uh, or to prevent escalation in, in a crisis. So uh, uh, it's simple as that. Uh, they are intended uh, to stabilize the security situation, to stabilize military balance, uh, to prevent each side uh, uh, from being able uh, of to which a successful uh, large-scale, as I emphasize actual large-scale aggression. Uh, so yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's about uh, predictability. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, so yes. Just be careful about... also that you don't touch your microphone, Nikolai. Otherwise we can hear some interference. Okay. Uh, uh, so, uh, so, so, um, Arms control enhances predictability and stability. When you talk about escalation during a crisis, uh, the only real tool we, uh, we have um, is hotlines. Oh, yes, and we've got some today. Uh, so, uh, yes, I agree with we will need to restore the network of arms control and confidence building um, agreements uh, so that uh, we do not end up in the situation that we see today. Uh, uh, yes, that's really vital. Uh, uh, at the end of the Cold War and shortly after the Cold War, we created a whole network 
of, of such agreements. And unfortunately, it, it has fallen apart. Uh, is the current asset prices is one of the consequences mm, of that. I always said that we probably lost them because we, after the end of the Cold War, uh, stopped fearing nuclear war. And I think that the current crisis actually brings back that fear and uh, uh, tells us that we were actually wrong uh, to neglect the need uh, to maintain and uh, to strengthen arms control and confidence building regimes. Uh, we need to relearn the lesson from the Cold War. Uh, and that would be vital, but I do agree, actually, oh, I said the same thing, we do need to start thinking about uh, the future. What happens after the end of the war? How do we uh, build a new international system? Uh, one of uh, actually the dangerous consequences will be uh, the perception in the West. Uh, we've been right all along and we will be right in the future, like forever. Uh, well, mistakes were made uh, uh, by all sides. And we need to avoid these mistakes. And I would say that our righteousness is a sin. <laughs> and uh, we need to avoid that sin. Uh, I think it's easy now uh, uh, to see that Russia is wrong. We, absolutely. Uh, the invasion uh, 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 says it all. Uh, but Russian invasion is not, I uh, will need proof uh, 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 that the West has been wrong. We do need some very serious thinking, some very serious forecasting. And uh, uh, it will not be easy, but we must do. Thank you for that, Nicola. I'm very conscious of time. We have uh, been together for 90 minutes. So uh, let me just thank you very much, our two speakers, Dr. Ulrich Kühn from Hamburg and Dr. Nikolai Sokov, who joined us from Vienna, for your insightful analysis under these very Mm, concerning and pes pessimistic circumstances. We really appreciate it. And thank you everyone in the audience for posing your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah.